0: Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done, perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20.
1: We are kicking off our first ever CityCast 6 Awards, where we recognize six individuals transforming DC in various categories like food, business, music, and more. We want your input. Vote at the link in the show notes before November 17th. Today on CityCast DC, in 1906, a group of entrepreneurs set out to create an upscale Black suburban community in what is now Chevy Chase. It never happened. And eventually, even the outrageous tale of how powerful locals subverted the plan was lost to the ages. Historians Neil Flanagan and Kimberly Bender have reconstructed the history, and they're here to tell us how a century-old injustice still shapes who lives where in Washington's suburbs. Today is Thursday, November 9th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. Hey, Neil.
2: How you doing?
1: I'm good. Hey, Kim. Hi. So, Neil, you grew up in Tenleytown. Mm-hmm. And you were hearing these rumors about this so-called servant neighborhood that was supposed to have been built, or supposed to have been planned somewhere in Northwest DC. What were the rumors that you had heard?
2: Well, the, the rumor that I had heard was that there was an attempt to build a black servant, like town or neighborhood, just uh, next to Chevy Chase, Maryland, and that is more or less the extent of it. Just oh, did you didn't you hear that? And. That some of that was also repeated in a there obviously had been done some research had been done in the, the late '90s and early 2000s on that, but nothing really had come of it, and so it's just a rumor.
1: So, how did you discover the truth behind this rumor all these years
2: later? Uh, since about 2009, I've been researching the history of what is now Fort Reno Park, which was at the time was a was a pretty thriving African american neighborhood, and it was destroyed in the 1950s and '30s and. Um, I thought it was very strange that really no research had been done on it since the 80s, really. And so I started digging into it and I was plugging along and I started investigating this one figure who was a lawyer, a radical African-American lawyer in the 1920s named James Lincoln Neal. Just started plugging him in uh, through through searches, through, you know, the Washington Post database, Chronicling America, these digitized newspaper databases. And sure enough, the this huge headline comes up that says... Um, Belmont issue stirs Realty World. And first off, it was the name that I had heard, right? It was Belmont. And I think I actually like got out of chair and like laughed out loud. Like it was like this rumor that I had heard and com- almost completely forgotten about. And very quickly reading the article, I realized almost everything I'd heard about it was not true. And it it specifically said that it was at the intersection of Wisconsin Avenue and Western Avenue, and that it was largely aimed at a, at a pretty affluent population of African-Americans not servants definitely was not a servant's colony from the beginning there was a lot of press once i started narrowing searches down and i had been invited by kim to give a talk about a completely unrelated figure at the hierark house uh, her museum and i heard she was a lawyer when we were talking and so i was we, like so
3: we were talking in my office Just he was like, I'm researching this really cool thing, but I really need a lawyer, and I have to figure out like who I could talk to who would help actually help me read these cases from 1906. And I was like, Well, I'm a lawyer, and I also run a history museum, and so that was the beginning of us working together on this. And I think like a few weeks later, we went back to the Maryland State Archives and started reading these old files that I don't think anyone had ever looked at before. And we've been working on it since then. That was 2017. So
1: what'd you find out? What happened? What is the story?
3: Well, the story is that there were four African-American men from D.C. who got together and created a business partnership. They called themselves the Belmont Syndicate, and they used a straw buyer um, straw buyer meaning a person who is sort of the intermediary to purchase a plot of land from the Chevy Chase Land Company. So, probably we're not 100% we don't have the exact data, but probably the Chevy Chase Land Company did not know who was purchasing this land and neither did anybody else involved in the transaction.
1: So, the, they use a, a white straw buyer because a the Chevy Chase buyer. Land Company is controlled by even by the standards of that. Era, a notorious white supremacist. Yes. But so what do they want to do with this parcel of land?
3: It shows in all of the ads. They wanted to build a Chevy Chase for Black people. So the way we know Chevy Chase today is being this land suburb, like, you know, all the houses are on plots that look the same size. They have the same setback from the street. They're planning to do the same thing for Black people from Washington, D.C. And they advertised very openly that they were selling these plots of land.
2: Can I read that ad? Because it it really captures a lot of what they're selling. They put up this ad in the Washington Post on July 1st, 1906, and this is what it says. It says, colored people attention, exclamation mark. A chance is offered to you to buy an ideal suburban lot in the most beautiful and most rapidly improving section of Northwest Washington, Belmont Chevy Chase. They list up its benefits. It's healthy, it's high and beautiful. Uh, The lots and streets are already laid out. And they sort of come to the conclusion that it's the only good subdivision of Washington where colored people are welcome to buy and it'll be sold up completely in just a few days. So this
1: is a moment when the suburbs are just kind of getting invented Yes. and there is enough black wealth in this area that they think, let's get a company together and market to folks. And everything's going great. But those ads didn't maybe get such a great reaction from some of the other Chevy chasers.
3: The ads didn't get a good reaction from a bunch of different communities up in the same area. So we have other newspaper articles interviewing residents of Somerset and Drummond who are, I mean, they're mad there's going to be a black community up there and they're close to grabbing pitchforks.
1: So the notion that this is like going to be, you know, doctors and lawyers or whatever that doesn't mollify them. They still see it as a criminal, dangerous element.
3: I'm not sure that they thought that deeply about it. You know, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they understood what it was even meant to be.
2: I don't think it registered at all what this was because they talk about how, you know, it will per- completely disturb the peace and the harmony of their suburbs. And this you know, even reaches the New York Times. It's the level of coverage it gets.
1: One of the comments that in in your guys' article about this that struck me was when the the person said, and it's going to be just over Western Avenue beyond the reach of the district police. Yes, right, exactly.
3: And they even go so far as to arrest one of the Belmont syndicate and bring the one who's really the, the main face of the project, who's the realtor who has a realty license. I mean, you can just imagine this picture. They march him up to the front steps of the judge's white-pillared home and have this little trial in front of his house, and they're trying to arrest him for selling realty without a license, which is not true.
1: Let me me stop for a second. Mm -hmm. They go out of their way to get a straw buyer, so they're able to acquire the land that might not have been sold to them otherwise. There is no racial covenant on the land, but they still felt like they needed to get a straw buyer. And I guess at that point, they thought they were in the clear because they then began advertising publicly and kind of ditched the subterfuge.
3: Yeah, I do think that there is a level of mismatch in their business acumen between the Dalmat Syndicate and the Chevy Chase Land Company that becomes much clearer later when the Chevy Chase Land Company, you know, humbles them in court. And so there is, I think, maybe a lot of hope in their open advertisement of this suburb.
2: So the thing to really understand is that they saw property as a lifeboat, that as reconstruction fell apart in the United States, African-Americans started to really become interested in property because it was a way to secure certain rights that were not being secured under the civil rights provisions of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment.
0: When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, A Vida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheatre.org or call
1: 202-234-7174. So how did this plan, this idea, get thwarted?
3: So when the Belmont Syndicate purchased this land, it wasn't just the way we think about it, that you'd pay somebody off and then you own it. They had to pay off a lot of different people over a really long period of time. And only if those people felt like they'd done it properly, would they even be given the deed to the property. So at the end of the day, they were not able to accomplish that. And even when they were able to pay off some of that debt, the Chevy Chase Land Company said, We don't like the way you did that. And we don't believe that you intend to use this land properly. So we're not going to give you the deed. So they were never actually given the ownership to the land the way we would think about it today.
1: But the implication in what you all have written is that all of this, you know, legal scrutiny and stuff happened because they realized they had sold to black people.
3: Essentially. Well, not just essentially, they say in their court documents They don't say because you're Black people. They say because we really don't trust that you're going to use this land the way that you're saying that you're going to.
1: And that this kind of recourse to legal arcana was just a way of like snowing under people you want to get rid of.
3: Right. And it's basically like keeping them in court for as long as possible and until it just runs out the clock and runs out their money and then runs out their desire to even fight this.
1: So what wound up happening?
3: So... The court cases, they're fighting, they're fighting. The Belmont Syndicate falls apart under the strain. And one of them just keeps fighting until everything goes silent in the court records. We're not quite sure why it just happened at that moment. That's in 1908. It doesn't come back to life until 1926. And then they settle.
1: But the bottom line is the the neighborhood never got built. And so
3: nothing ever got built in that time, yeah.
1: A- and evidence that anything was even planned was sort of vanished.
2: They seem to have deliberately worked to cover it up. And because of the legal cases, the project was dead for sure by 1909. The problem is that because they, there's still a subdivision on the books, and actually when I've posted this about this story to like old time uh, Bethesda Chevy Chase, people have said that they've seen the subdivision in the books and maybe that's the source of the rumor but they couldn't clear the subdivision until 1926 when they entered into this uh, mysterious settlement that we don't know the terms of.
3: So basically they couldn't do anything to the land. The S- Chevy Chase Land Company, having uh, successfully sort of driven the Belmont syndicate off this property, couldn't do anything with it until they cleared up the title and ownership of the land and got rid of the subdivision, which is the creation of smaller parcels within the land. And that happened in 1926, which allowed them to build what we see there today.
2: I think to think about in 1926 is actually, there's a lot of things uh, that are happening in the story. And one is both kind of the end of reconstruction era, DC and African-American ambition. And at the same time, the rise of a, of a modern real estate industry and the modern real estate systems. In the intervening of 17 years, a lot of things happen. And for example, just before the subdivision is extinguished, the concept of the racial covenant is made legal. So there had been significant legal questions about whether racial covenants were legal. And then just a few months before Belmont is wiped off the map, uh, the Supreme Court declares that they're a private interaction and therefore not governed by any of the reconstruction amendments.
3: And it's an example of how there's lots and lots of ways that you can use many different tools to uh, discriminate against people in real estate that are not as overt as racial covenants. So this is a great example of, they never really brought race into it theoretically, but it was the basis of the entire issue. And these are tools that are still used today.
1: So what is that part of town like now?
2: Half of that became uh, Chevy Chase section 1A which is part of Chevy Chase, it became houses, being very nice houses. The other half became a retail strip.
3: The Saks Fifth Avenue is a b- basically Belmont.
1: And these nice houses that got built on half of the parcel, I am assuming those nice houses became occupied by white people. I mean, when they were first built.
2: C- certainly at the time.
1: So this is a terrible and probably quite common story. Bring us into the present with the impact it has today. You wrote in your article about it that it had an effect on the sort of demographic patterns of suburban Washington, where affluence tended to go north and west and where the Black suburbs, predominantly Black suburbs, tended to be north and east of central Washington.
3: So, you know, this was a pretty good lesson, I think, or a pretty good warning shot to people not to try to do this again in Northwest Washington. And, And sort of in the intervening years, between when Belmont was started and when it was destroyed or when it was taken off the map, there are many other attempts at building suburbs and actual, actually built suburbs in Northeast Washington for Black people.
2: Immediately after Belmont, we see an incident where a man named Thomas J. Calloway starts to become, to represent a large real estate interest in Prince George's County, on the streetcar that went to Annapolis and Baltimore. And he starts to set up this town called Lincoln, Maryland which still sort of exists, and it's certainly not as nice as Chevy Chase, but he founds this town called Lincoln, Maryland, which has many of the covenants, many restrictions loaded into the Deed covenants. At the same time, you see a similar development that's a little bit earlier, but has the same kind of uh, interest called Fairmount Heights. And then uh, slightly later, you start to see a town called Glen Arden, which is never quite as affluent, but it actually does eventually self-organize in order to take control of its infrastructure.
1: But, and, and so, but these places and some in Northeast D.C. are still existent.
2: All these towns, uh, neighborhoods still exist. And I think we could argue that are the beginning of the trend where well-to-do African-Americans settle in Prince George's County and build their suburbs there. Accepting separation, as Thomas Calloway puts it in, a, in an article he has in The Crisis, accepting separation for quality of life and peace of mind. So
1: back to Belmont, I understand that the authorities, the government in, in Maryland, is at the, at last taking some kind of step to recognize this history. What what are they doing?
3: During COVID, the historic marker program was on pause, but we decided that we were going to, anyway, uh, file an application for Belmont to receive a historic marker. And they let us know that it will be the first marker cast in the reopening of the program, and that should happen in February.
2: And before that, we also there, we're working with the Friendship Heights Alliance to install some exhibits on what's called the Pepco substation. If you know Friendship Heights, it's right by the metro on the DC side. Those exhibits, will talk about Belmont and that will open in December. You know, I think what we say on the marker is that it represents the close of the reconstruction era, which lingered in DC for longer. And it foreshadows the century of housing segregation. Not that segregation is over, but, but uh, it certainly was very legal for about 100 years.
3: And for DC, I think it's a really good example of how Fra- Francis Newlands, who is the head of the Chevy Chase Land Company and an avowed racist, an open racist, how his development philosophy created the Northwest that we see today. It was very purposeful. And it wasn't just Belmont. It as Neil's research shows, it continued down in explains why Upper Northwest looks the way that it does today and also Upper Northwest in being sort of the place that people like the Chippy Chase Land Company aimed to turn into white communities it wasn't just white communities it was white wealthy communities and so you have a lot of resources focused in this big part of the city and which you know all the power and resources are then flowing into Upper Northwest and it starves the rest of the city. And I think that's been part of the legacy of this and other projects like this.
2: Uh, you know, Michael, you said this was a, a terrible event and it, and it was, but I think a really important uh, thing is, is also to recognize the ambition of these four men, right? So the four men were James Neal, uh, Michelle Dumas, uh, Alexander Satterwhite, and Charles Cuny. And the people that they brought into Belmont, to they sold bots to or wrote, or connected, many of them were very interesting people. And they represented this black bourgeoisie in DC at the time. And many of them, some of them had fought in the Civil War. Michelle Dumas, actually his future wife is one of the purchasers, and she worked on a ship for a NOAA fisheries ship, a uh, research vessel. And I think that it's very important to understand Not just that Black people were oppressed, but the lives that the Black people have, that there is a tremendous amount of ambition and talent in this community that is not recognized. So in addition to acknowledging the harms that were done, it's important to recognize the incredible lives that participated in this attempt to create a better life.
1: Neil and Kim, thank you guys for being here. Absolutely.
3: Thank you for having us.
2: And that is
1: all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to the Morning Newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.